Well, everyone, uh, thank you all for coming. Um, I'm excited to talk to you today about uh, Rethink Priorities, which is an organization I, I just got started with uh, my colleague Peter Herbert uh, last year, and um, things have been going so well. Um, and that's it. I'm going to hop right into it. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, Rethink Priorities uh, began in January 2018. Uh, I started it with my colleague, Peter Herbert, uh, and we're primarily a research organization uh, dedicated to investigating uh, neglected, tractable causes. So uh, what does that mean? It means we, we try to do things that like are high value and also can actually be done. Um, we, we, we explicitly do these because these are the things I think can influence the way funders and other animal organizations behave. So um, even within that, that's still a very broad scope. So we're looking primarily at within intervention research. So uh, so some of you who are familiar with effective altruism, there's kind of like camps of like, uh, well, people working on global health, some people working on animal welfare, some people working on uh, existential risk. Uh, so we're primarily, instead of trying to compare these to each other, we are looking to narrow down and to drill in to gather more information in areas where uh, perhaps there hasn't been this type of analysis uh, within the topic and also to explore and find new areas uh, within these fields. So I'm going to talk to you today about two examples of our work um, that we've done from this year. Uh, that is fish stocking, in, uh, which I'll explain, and invertebrate sentience, which again, I will explain if you're not familiar with what all these terms mean. So um, we, uh, and we very collectively, Solvus Machias, who was a primary work researcher on this, uh, investigated fish stocking. So fish stocking is uh, the process by which uh, fish are raised in hatcheries to later be released into the wild for various reasons. Um, this was rather straightforward information collection uh, where there's a lot of information out there in the world about uh, fish stock in various countries and various domains, but we have to gather that information to one place and to analyze it to try to get a sense of what, uh, what is happening and what can and should be done. So um, the the way we went about this was um, uh, basically um, it's part of a larger effort to count animals in which we tried to get a sense of well there are these animals in these conditions and this this is a effort by which if you have a good sense of how many animals are in in uh, various conditions and you can line them all up you can kind of get a sense of how you should prioritize. So um, there are a lot of fish raised in this way. So something like. 30 to 100 billion uh, in a given year. Uh, for context, uh, there's something like 45, 45 uh, maybe 150 billion farm fish uh, raised every year, and something like uh, 60 or 70 uh, land animals raised, uh, farmed raised every year. So uh, the fact that this hasn't been something that's been well studied is considerably, it's a considerable problem. It's an issue that we, that we think that um, could potentially be uh, worth prioritizing, but there are a lot of caveats around whether perhaps this may not be the case. Now, I, I don't have time to get into, but feel free to, to ask questions about it. Uh, and uh, importantly, uh, when we were looking into this, we, we didn't find any, we didn't find any, any existing organizations looking to actually uh, looking to reduce the, the possible harms from this. And given that, uh, like, like uh, other farmed animals, uh, these, are, are, these, these fish are raised for economic reasons. There's no particular reason to believe that their welfare considerations are being taken care of. 
Um, so why are fish stock? This may sound very strange uh, as a process of like, why would you raise a fish in a hatchery and then release into the wild? Well, there are several reasons. Uh, uh, the primary reason is commercial fishing. So uh, because uh, for, for a variety of re reasons around the world, uh, commercial fishermen want higher catches, we, perhaps because the, uh, the local fishing process has already diluted the, the pool of existing fish. So uh, they've come up with a clever workaround of, well, Clever, but it's uh, basically just raising fish and then releasing them yourselves. Uh, so this is perhaps in the tens of billions order, on the order of tens of, tens of billions a year. Um, and this is, is perhaps the, 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 it's the plurality of, of, uh, fish that are raised this way. Uh, secondly, there's fish that are raised for, um, uh, recreational fishing. So this would be like lakes and streams and ponds where they're, they're, uh, again, perhaps overfished or perhaps not many fish there at all. And to increase the pleasure of fishermen, uh, people raise fish, uh, for, uh, to be released into these, into these situations. I'm, I'm going to discuss a bit more about like what, the conditions are, but specifically, I'm going to show uh, what the, the actual process of releasing a fish in this this way will look like. Um, and finally, I should note that there's also reasons, like ecological reasons, to uh, that, that are used to store, excuse me, to raise fish uh, in this way. And that that would be if there's a endangered species or some uh, in, in environment or uh, they're trying to be rehabilitated. Uh, and these are perhaps the fish that we have least reason to be concerned about the welfare because if you if you think about it clearly, the the if the goal is to increase the number of fish that are out there as opposed to increase uh, the temporary the temporary stock or supply for uh, fishermen to take advantage of, um, you have different incentives. Yeah, so um, what are the conditions of these fish? Uh, uh, fish can be stocked at a variety of ages. Um, pictured here is uh, uh, fish when it's quite young, a few days, up to uh, a couple weeks. Uh, and the mean time spent in these hatcheries is, is kind of uncertain uh, because there's a lot of different species that are raised, a lot of different species are raised in these conditions. Uh, but something like a few days to a few months um, with a lot of uncertainty around the edges. Um, and um, fish stock in recreational fisheries are usually a bit older because if you're trying to, if you're trying to directly, uh, you're trying to directly, uh, improve the, the catch of a fisherman, you don't have time for them to grow up later. It's about like very, very quickly returning on, um, returning on, uh, the fish is dropped into the lake and then it's, it's caught at a, a reasonable size for fishermen. Um, Again, without any real consideration of the welfare of the fish involved. Uh, so, uh, specifically, uh, if you want to look inside of like what, uh, these hatcheries look like, um, this, this is a steal from a video that's just on YouTube, which is, uh, something that's just not very common if you think about, uh, uh, uh land, land fish that, excuse me, <laughs> land animals that are farmed. Uh, there's not a lot of information, uh, just publicly available showing you what the inside of their, their farms are like. Um, however, in this case, uh, if you squint real hard, you may see that, uh, there's a sign at the top of this image which, which suggests that each of these tanks may contain 50,000 fingerlings. So even in a facility not much larger than the size of this room, you, we're talking about the welfare of hundreds of thousands of indivi individuals. Again, uh, this is again for a good sense of scale. This isn't very large at all. And yet each of those, uh, each of those containers may, may house up to 30,000, uh, farm fish. Uh, so this is, uh, it can, this is a, this is a, a problem that can, can grow and can be, um, it can be quite a challenge to contain all this if it's, if it's going to be, uh, even in small areas, you can have hundreds of thousands of fish raised this way. Um, uh, again, uh, so, 
specifically, um, it's not clear how much hatcheries have incentive to do anything about their welfare. Um, it's it's also the case that in the case of particularly in the case of commercial uh, fish stocking, um, uh, fish that are raised and then released into the wild, if they're somewhat older, you can imagine they might have a hard time learning to uh, learn to forage and to uh, feed themselves because they've been fed in a tank. From their whole life, and then you imagine releasing uh, recent animal under those conditions, they may immediately starve to death. Um, so um, um, the, re the release itself, this is an image that looks very terrifying, but it's actually quite normal. This image is actually I took directly from uh, an agency of the Canadian government's Twitter account. This is fish being released via helicopter into a lake, um, and it doesn't look great. Um, the survival rate actually surprisingly high for something like this, but the process you can imagine of being stuck and like being forced into a helicopter and then released uh, itself is probably not terrific. Uh, so uh, what, if anything, can we do about this? Uh, it's a little uncertain uh, given there's not a lot of people working in this area. Uh, that said, uh, some obvious areas uh, to go into would be just learning more about what the conditions are like. Uh, you can do this through a variety of means, but through uh, additional scientific research, additional research on individual countries that are doing this, uh, and the companies that are doing it in... Um, we can require better conditions for animals just as we uh, make a welfare strides uh, and welfare request of uh, farmed land animals um, and generally gather more data on the welfare of uh, species and how they uh, how each species uh, needs to be treated to thrive. Um, that, that all said, I'm going to pivot hard to uh, talk about invertebrate sentence. Um, which is another topic, uh, another project we worked on this year. Um, so uh, for those of you who don't know, sentience is some, in, in this sense, I'm going to use it very vaguely as uh, something it's like to be that thing. So if an uh, animal or creature had is sentient, it, there's some internal process going on. There's some subjective experience. Um, um, and it, because it's invertebrates, some of you may be asking, why bother doing this at all? I'm going to get into, bit into that and get a bit into how we did what we did. Again, skipping uh, many limitations and caveats uh, and also discuss a, a bit about like what does it all really mean? Um, so uh, there are a lot of invertebrates. I, I can't emphasize that enough. Like the, the, my, I can't shout it enough or or give you numbers that can really help you comprehend this. Um, the table off to the left is actually a, a scale of mass, but uh, by number, uh, there are something like ten to the twenty-seven animals to approximation, and to an approximation, there is something like ten to the twenty-seven invertebrates. So most animals are invertebrates. Uh, so if you're thinking about how that's going to help animals, uh, you, you may want to take seriously account uh, invertebrates uh, given their scale. Um, so uh, basically, on any theory, assuming uh, some animal can suffer, uh, uh, any plausible moral theory, I, I would say, uh, there's a strong possibility you should give them some moral credence. Um, so uh, some, uh, additionally, even if it was just some limited credence, uh, many invertebrates express behaviors in uh, cognitive complexity that's seen in animals that many people in this room would typically associate with dogs and mammals and, and cats and um, animals we have a lot of experience with and already care about. So what did we actually do to better understand this topic? Uh, we investigated uh, uh, inspired by uh, inspired by some work done by Open Philanthropy Project. Uh, this is a table uh, from Melhauser's look at consciousness. Uh, so broadly, looking at a series of invertebrates and on a series of potentially sentence-indicating features, uh, trying to analyze which of these features do these animals possess. Um, 
So we looked at a rather wide variety of animals. I uh, will get into more into that. Uh, so we looked at 12 invertebrate uh, uh, groups of animals, and also we looked at a few uh, few examples of things that are plausibly, uh, pretty probably not sentient. So plants, prokaryotes, and protists. Uh, and additionally, we looked at some uh, looked at humans, chickens, and cows. Humans, obviously, being the base case where we're the most certain that we are uh, sentient. Uh, and uh, perhaps uh, interestingly, we looked at uh, things that can happen in humans non-consciously as a, as a potential counterexample. Um, so uh, we looked at a variety of features. This is a, a high-level categorization of those features. I'm not going to get into the details of all of them, uh, but some of them are rather obvious anatomical or evolutionary uh, features. These are things that are biologically present in the animal inherently, or they're distance from, say, uh, humans on an ev evolutionary timescale. Uh, there's uh, drug, drug motivate. Excuse me. There's a uh, uh, drug responses. So these are things like uh, how an animal responds to opiates, or rather it responds to recreational drugs. Of course, it's a huge uh, caveat around whether you can extrapolate the, the understanding of how an animal responds to something like recreational drugs to their uh, whether or not they're actually experiencing something. And the same similar caveats apply to just simply assessing uh, whether they respond to opiates at all. Um, uh, there are a number of different things around mood, uh, things like uh, whether they, they seem to become depressed if you you give them the wrong stimulus or, or whether they seem to be anxious. Uh, uh, and again, these are, there's, a, there's a ton of these features. Um, I don't have time to get them into them all. Uh, perhaps uh, one of the ones that a lot of people are most interested in is uh, cognitive sophistication. So these are what, what types of impressive feats can they do intellectually, whether it's be solving, solving mazes or, or uh, puzzles, escaping from situations, or displaying just general intelligence. Intelligence. Um, so, um, so uh, there's a ton of limitations here. Um, there's a many of these features uh, are, are possibly relevant. Uh, we we looked at a certain list, but there's an even larger list that are, that are used. We primarily try to gather evidence from uh, existing literature reviews and things that are very prominent in, in studies. Uh, but that said, we still have to make some exclusions, uh, and we still have to uh, make some trade-offs between um, uh, between gathering gathering uh, certain information and whether it, uh, say, fits neatly into a certain category. Um, there's um, cognitive features is, a, is perhaps one of the biggest limitations. Cognitive features are limited to uh, things that invertebrates could plausibly do. So it wouldn't make sense if I said, say, uh, inclusion on the table can write an opera, right? Um, because there's no particular reason to think uh, any given invertebrate or even most humans could do that. Um, and um, there's a variety of data limitations around uh, possessing these features at all. Uh, this is the full list of features uh, for the completions in the room. I'm not going to get into this at all, uh, but uh, all of my slides, is a good time to mention, are available at the tiny URL in the corner, uh, and you can come back to this in, at your leisure. All right, so uh, what did our end product of doing this type of analysis look like? So primarily, we gathered this information into an interactive uh, table where you can select the features you want, select the animals you want, and just review uh, review uh, our collection of the evidence. So we, it's for ease of navigation, we rated uh, the end result of each of these on a scale of like uh, they, like, they uh, likely don't possess this feature, likely no, to likely yes. Uh, and then within that, you can, you can click through each of these uh, links and drop down to um, drop down to the scientific evidence we gather, and sometimes some notes about uh, about the topic. All right, so this is just broadly how this works. Again, this is very useful if you want to come back to this later. Yeah. All right. So um, 
specifically, uh, uh, important implementation here is uh, I mentioned we gathered 12 different invertebrate taxa, but this is not species. Uh, so uh, among, the, among the animals we gathered, uh, some groups are much larger than others. Spiders perhaps spiders being the largest, uh, there's something, some 40,000 species of spiders. Uh, so if you think about, uh, again, if you think about uh, ways where this may not translate, if you gather information on all spiders and then only certain species of those spiders can display certain of those features, it may be the case that you're you're leading a misleading picture uh, such that, again, if you said, um, um, you said all mammals, uh, can mammals play chess? And the answer is like, yes, some mammals can play chess, but this doesn't tell you anything at all useful about dogs. Um, again, even more limitations, because I'm going to get into some of these. Uh, uh, basically, drug responses, uh, like a lot of things, come in degrees. It's hard, even within the individual study, to suggest that uh, the the behavior you observe is actually indicative of a given thing. Uh, so there's a particular reason to... There's a particular reason to be cautious about any of the results we see on a number of these things where we're extrapolating not just from animal behavior, but into uh, what does this mean for uh, uh, similarity with human-like behavior under those conditions. Um, uh, motivational trade-off, I want to highlight self-control, which is a particularly interesting uh, feature. So some of you may be aware of the marshmallow test. This is a test we give to children uh, and sometimes uh, birds and other animals in which we offer an animal, say, um, we offer an animal a, a marshmallow, for example, and say, uh, right now, if you eat this, you can have one, but if you wait 10 minutes, you can have two. Uh, so this is a, this is a actually incredibly difficult challenge for four year olds. Um, and, uh, there's a, there's actually great videos of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, gray parrots, uh, uh, doing the same task, and they actually they, they seem to visually import the same strategies to get through this test. Uh, but this is very interesting because some of these tests have actually been performed on invertebrates, uh, which I'll get to. And I guess finally, I want to flag uh, uh, flexible tool use. So there's uh, classical uh, tool use would be like the ability to use any given uh, thing that's not your natural part of your natural body. But flexible tool use, we set a higher, still subjective standard of this is something that wasn't in your evolutionary environment, but something that you could you could perhaps uh, demonstrate your uh, intellectual ability by adapting to use some tool. Um, so uh, I, I want to get to a couple of specific examples. So uh, honeybees and ants. Uh, honeybees, uh, they display an array of uh, impressive features. Uh, many of you are probably aware they're considered very social creatures. But specifically looking at some of the things we looked at, uh, they displayed a dose-dependent response to analgesics. So that would be... Um, that would be perhaps impressive if you're thinking, well, what, what other reason than actually experiencing pain uh, would there be for having a dose-dependent dose response? Uh, ants, by contrast, there's, you know, there was no evidence, like no evidence at all, not just that there was uh, evidence to the contrary. There's just no studies on this topic. This is a good, another indication of the limitations of this, of this type of approach. Um, uh, both, uh, both honeybees and ants groom themselves in response to like toxins. You can think of evolutionary reasons why this may be the case. Uh, nevertheless, this seems to count as some type of evidence that they're aware of, uh, uh, aware of, or at least doing something to, to extend their own lives. Um, Bumblebees, which are not honeybees, but are uh, genetically close, uh, th there's actually evidence that they can, uh, they can, they can learn by observing things. Uh, this is, again, something that is difficult very often for small children to, to accomplish. Uh, but in this case, bumblebees, uh, bumblebees can, um, uh, they can uh, visually watch something happen and then pick up on it after the fact. Um, and also, uh, as I mentioned on self-control, they can pick a delayed, they pick a delayed reward, larger delayed reward over a smaller present one. And there's no information like this, again, showing limitation for ants. Um, 
octopuses. There's a there's a ton of uh, studies on octopuses. So uh, again. Um, there is, uh, but perhaps one of the more interesting things is that there's no known analgetics, so there's no particularly uh, known painkillers for octopuses. But on the other hand, they can regrow in their own limbs. So what does it even mean to say that there are no known painkillers when you have a behavior like that? This is a good, another example of the limitations of this type of approach. Um, they also, uh, as the image showed earlier, they can take human discarded uh, coconut shells, uh, obviously something that's not they've not interacted with the on on a uh, long time scale, and um, and yet they can use this to, as housing. So this is a good indication of their general intelligence. Uh, th there's tons more on their general intelligence. If you think about anecdotes, everything from them escaping mazes, them uh, solving puzzles, to uh, perhaps my personal favorite of of uh, uh, deliberately throwing the food on the floor if they don't think it's high enough quality. So uh, finally, uh, but. Are invertebrates sentient? Uh, maybe it, it depends a lot on um, on the inver invertebrate, um, and um, the evidence is, is varied by uh, varied by uh, by species a lot. Um, the table on your, the table on the left is actually an indication of uh, of the features we of the features we looked at, which animal uh, captured. Uh, those features. Uh, so this is not a, a, a degree of sentience scale. It's a, it's a how how what percentage of what we looked at did they capture? Um. Uh, Basically, you can make a case against uh, invertebrates. I want to throw that out there. So you can you can think uh, you shouldn't care about at all if the if you shouldn't care at all about their moral pains and pleasures. You shouldn't care uh, if uh, if it happens because any moral theory rec which recommends this is um, which is is basically invalid on its face because of this. Uh, but overall, um, I think all of these uh, arguments, like th these types of arguments generally are too strong, and in my personal opinion, uh, we're actually going to release some opinion pieces on this topic later. Um, there's, um, there's not, um, there's, there's not so much certainty that you can bring to these arguments that you can get beneath, say, uh, one to five percent credence that, uh, uh, insects, uh, in insects and octopuses and some other invertebrates we categorize actually, uh, possess these features. So, um, given all of that, um, I'm already over time. I'm going to stop there and uh, thank you all for coming and feel free to fire questions at me uh, right after this or in my office hours after the fact. All right. Thank you, Marcus. So when it comes to sentience, and I think particularly when it comes to invertebrate sentience, people have a lot of different priors. So I'm wondering if you are aware what your team's priors are and how you account for that in your research methodology, if at all. Yeah, so um, I guess one thing about our approach is we were trying to be as theory neutral as possible. So we weren't gathering, uh, gathering evidence on the theory that like a given theory of consciousness is correct. Uh, so uh, one of the, the nice parts about being able to uh, being able to select the features you think are important in the feature, in the table is that you can just like whatever your current priors are, like you think, well, I think this series of features is important, and you can just show yourself the, that series of features. Um, and as far as accounting for whether like at the end uh, we come to a certain percentage, uh, the, the whole the, the goal of this project wasn't to come to a certain credence that invertebrates are sentient, but however, actually having looked at it. I think it was important to release our like our takes on this. We're going to explain in some depth about why we came to the conclusions we did, uh, and uh, there's there's wide divergence within the team about even what the the correct uh, the correct level of credence to give to different invertebrates is. 
Fabulous. Okay, great. So that's actually all we have time for for questions, but Marcus does have a full half hour of office hours from 1 to 1.30, and those are in the Queen Vault, so feel free to continue the conversation there. Um, and we actually have lunch now, so I first just want to thank you so much for your presentation and for being part of EAG this year. Um, everyone give Marcus a round of applause, please. Okay, so you can head upstairs for lunch. Um, there might be a bit of a line, but I've been asked to tell you that they'll be working as speedily as possible. Uh, enjoy, and we will be back here at 2 p.m. <laughs>